Welcome to episode three of the Arbor Vitae podcast, promoting virtue in woodworking. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Jonathan Conrad. And we'll be your co-hosts for today. Our mission is to explore how different virtues influence the way we live and work in the shop, how virtues contribute to the fruitfulness of our labor, and to highlight those who are making significant contributions to this great woodworking community. And before we get started on what we're working on, um, I'd like to take this opportunity to just thank all of our awesome listeners. Um, you guys are making it so easy to do this podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the, the conversations that happen and everything on social media and the encouragement that we've gotten is just kind of blowing us away. Um, so we're, we're very grateful for that, and we're glad that we can be uh, creating this content for you because that's that's really why we're doing it. We're not doing it. I mean, we could just have a conversation ourselves, <laughs> but uh, you know, we're doing it for you. Um, so, with that in mind, Jonathan, what have you been working on lately? So, I won't I won't get into the why right now. We'll talk about that in, during the show. But uh, what I've been working on, and I finished it a couple days ago, is a lathe cart. So it's not on the bench. It's a little too heavy to be on the bench, but it's next to the bench. <laughs> And it's a, it's a simple lathe cart. It was originally just a workbench without doors, uh, but it was too tall, you know, okay. about eight inches too tall, right? So I took the top off. Uh, I put rails on the inside of the cabinet, dropped it about eight inches. Um, and this is kind of where typically I would have just been like, oh, that's good enough. I can put the lathe on it and I'll just get to work. Um, but I wanted to actually finish it out. I usually don't finish out shop projects like that. I just cut corners and I just get to get to a completed version of it as quickly as possible. Um, but I wanted to take my time on this one and do it right. Uh, I had two extra doors left over from our kitchen renovation that we did in our previous home. And I've kind of been one like waiting for something to do with them. I knew they would end up in the shop, but I didn't know how. And they just happen to be literally the perfect size where they fit perfectly in the cabinet space. So I put them on, I painted them and I used, you know, I used scrap wood, I used scrap hinges. Uh, so it didn't cost me a dime to build a cabinet, which was fun. Um, I was just upcycling or recycling an existing shop cart that I had that uh, I wasn't really using much anymore. Uh, and it worked out perfectly. The other thing I did was in light of trying not to spend money on this project is I've one of the reasons why I never got too far into turning was that I did a couple of small projects. They were okay, but then the tools got dull and I didn't know how to sharpen them. Okay. Yeah. And so I just assumed, Oh, well I need a, a grinder to sharpen them. And yes, ideally I do, but a belt sander works fairly well. Actually, mm -hmm. if you pay attention to the, the, the temperature of the tool, make sure it doesn't get too hot. If it does, you dip it into water. That seems to work just fine. Um, and I'm not doing bowl turning or anything like that. So it's not like I have to sharpen these tools every 15 seconds. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't take that much to sharpen them. So I set up my belt sander at a 45 degree angle. I added a, like a, a, a wooden tool rest and I did some sharpening with it. And I, I was amazed at how much easier it was to try and sharpen them this time around versus when I had tried turning a year or two ago simply because I've gotten good at sharpening blades for planes and chisels. Okay. And that carried over very naturally into sharpening a, a, a turning tool. So yes, obviously it's a different method, but understanding what it takes to get a blade to be sharp applies across all blades. It doesn't matter what type of blade it is. Sharp is sharp. Uh, so that really helped make it easier for me to understand how to sharpen the turning tools. And I never liked the skew chisel, but I sharpened it, I would say properly. And it was so easy to use <laughs> way easier than the last time I tried to use it. Um, because nice. I literally just took it out of the box, you know, ordered it, a hurricane turning tool on Amazon. You know, it's a decent tool, mm -hmm. uh, took it out of the box and started turning with it. I was like, you know, I, it was okay, uh, but after giving it a good sharpening, boy, now I understand why, you know, so many turners swear by the um, by it because it was fun. So I'm looking forward to getting into the project, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, that's, awesome. that's what I've been working on. Adam, what about you? 
Um, before we before we go into me, I had a question for you. Um, I really liked the toggle that was on your cart, like to keep the doors closed. Oh yeah, yeah, that was that was neat. So um, we'll put a picture of the cart up in the show notes. But um, basically, you have those two doors that, which is awesome, that you're able to use those, you know, repurpose those doors and that they fit. Um, and I think, I don't know, it's always it's always nice to believe that there are no coincidences and so yeah. if you're doing the right thing at the right time things will just kind of fall into place um and so that's that was just kind of neat that yeah well the cool thing about doors. the toggle is i'm glad you brought that up i, I didn't even recognize it until you mentioned it but mm-hmm. it has some significance so it's the same toggle so basically it's a it's a i don't even it looks like a propeller blade Right. But when you turn it vertically, the doors open. When you turn it horizontally, it keeps the doors closed. Mm-hmm. That's the toggle that my dad had on his bench. Oh, my god. And the gosh. toggle that my grandfather had on his bench. So, my, you know, it, it's like kind of a... I don't know if other people do these things. You know, I, I'm sure it's not like my grandfather's the only one in the history of the world that's ever made something like that to keep two <laughs> doors closed. But um, that's where I got the inspiration from. So that was pretty cool to kind of carry that on because, you know, all my grandfather had it, my dad had it, and I think my grandfather helped my dad build his bench, but my dad still has his bench, you know, that same bench that I grew up working on in our basement, Um, and, you know, now I have a similar type of bench that, you know, right now is a lathe cart, but I'm sure at some point in time it might transition into something else. That's kind of how my, at least my shop projects they kind of evolve over time. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was cool because I, I've seen the, like, single toggles, like toggles for a single door. We actually use them as all of the the door locks on the doors in our house. Um, okay. Because they're all cedar. I want to say it's cedar. Well, it's either cedar or pine uh, <laughs> doors. Yeah. And then uh, we, we just have those toggles on everything, which okay. is really nice. But I had never seen one that was in the middle of two doors and worked you know, with both doors at the same time to keep them yeah. closed. So that's pretty neat. Uh, for me, basically, it's just more of the same, and I hope that doesn't bore our listeners, but we have made a little bit of progress on the garage and the bunk beds. For the garage, we have been pouring the concrete uh, cores in the cement blocks that we laid, and which is important because the entire back wall of the shop... And some of the sides are retaining walls. They function as retaining walls. So oh. they're technically part of the walls are technically below grade. So they'll have ground pushing on them. Okay. So you reinforce inside of those with concrete and rebar and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. So we are, we got this uh, concrete mixer from Lowe's and we're mixing our own concrete. We are carrying it in buckets over to the scaffolding and then lifting up the buckets and pouring them inside the cores. So it's a great workout and it's reminding me exactly how out of shape I am, but also hopefully helping with that a little bit. So yeah, that's well, you'll nice. have to, uh, you'll have to share some of those progress shots on, on the Arbor VK podcast, Instagram feed. Cause okay. I know I'm sure our listeners would love to follow along. Uh, I want to follow along. I'm, I'm envious. I'd love to build my own shop. So they will all just live vicariously through you. Excellent. It's pretty cool. I, I'm i not paying for it. I mean, I'll, I'll be chipping in and stuff, but it's, it's dad's garage, you know, so he's kind of taken the, the bull by the horns, you know, and um, one of the things that we are paying for, uh, my brother and I are paying for, is we would like to insulate the shop. So that, I mean, we won't have, we'll probably, we might put a window unit in, in terms of air conditioning, and we're going to have a wood stove in the middle of it eventually, so that it will be a little bit more temperate in the winter. That's so cool. But, uh, plus, you know, the the best way to keep control over your growing enormous scrap wood pile is to have a wood stove in the shop. Because, right. There's a lot <laughs> you know, of people on Instagram that I've seen that have the same situation where they've got a wood burning stove and, yep. you know, in their garage or shop or wherever they are. And it's fueled by the scrap wood. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, but regardless of whether we have external 
heating and air conditioning, it's going to make it leaps and bounds better just to have the shop insulated. Mm-hmm. So dad wasn't sure that he was going to do that because it's already a very expensive project and he just retired. So his income is a little on the fixed side. And Dan and I were like, okay, we're going to be using the shop too. So we would like it to be comfortable and we can chip in and do the insulation (laughs) and the, you know, um, the other thing I'm really excited about is once we insulate, we're going to, I assume we're just going to put like something like OSB up, but we're going to paint it white and then we're going to have all of the, you know, big light fixtures spaced throughout the shop. So I'm hoping that it's going to be just very, very bright um, because our current shop at Dan's house is very dark. I think in the room where we have the machines, there's one light bulb hanging from the top. And yeah. then in the room where we have our workbenches, it's, which is actually an old bedroom, it has... Uh, I think like one fixture with three light bulbs, but they're just regular incandescent light bulbs. So there's a lot of shadows and you can't tell what color anything is and you can't see to work on stuff. So I'm excited to have this bright white reflective shop environment. And I know it's going to show the dust and the cobwebs, but we should be keeping it clean anyway. So that's a good point. I, I think it's a, a good trade off to have. So, well, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. Um, and I think that pretty much wraps up what both of us have going on. So we'd like to talk a little bit about the results of last episode's challenge question. Uh, do we have that challenge question? Well, it was all about what we what we make, what we charge for what we make, and how do we accommodate those in need that might not be able to afford those things. Yes. Um, so... We want to thank uh, Joseph and Chris for responding. Also, um, Father Thomas, we want to thank him for responding. Uh, he gave some comments on what the rule of St. Benedict says for monks, because for those of you who aren't familiar with Father Thomas, um, hopefully this isn't too much of a spoiler alert, but hopefully you will be soon. Um, <laughs> more on that later. Uh, he is a Benedictine monk and a woodworker. So, um, you know, he He's... was able to give us that. Uh, perspective and apparently the rule of St. Benedict states that monks should charge a little less than what others are charging for their work Um, which makes sense because the Benedictines aren't mendicants but they still espouse poverty and stability so it's you know it it makes sense that they would not want to charge as much as you know another professional woodworker would Um, and then the really cool thing I was really flabbergasted by this um, because it came completely out of the blue. Craig Thibodeau is at CT Fine Furniture on Instagram. If you don't already follow him, go do yourself a favor. I'm, I'm, I'm rarely going to tell you to stop listening to this podcast, but you need to stop listening to this podcast, open up Instagram, and go follow him because his work is just incredible. Yeah, and... we'll wait while you do that. We'll just pause for a second. CT Fine Furniture, go, go check him out. We'll be here when you get back. Yep. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, he said that he uh, was listening to the first episode of our podcast, which is really, really cool because, you know, he's got almost 20,000 Instagram followers and he's a you know professional woodworker who just does this amazing caliber work. He's slightly and- more talented than us. Yeah, you know, just just a little bit. <laughs> and the thought that someone of that caliber was listening to, you know, a, an an infant podcast um, done by just two guys who happen to like woodworking and want to try to live virtuously uh, was really, really cool. And he was able to give us some insights on profit and justice from a professional woodworker's standpoint, um, which is really neat. And... You know, he talked about his bottom line, how, you know, he has to feed his family with this. So, um, you know, he tries to deliver more quality than what his customers expect, which, I mean, you he take does. one look at the guy's feed and there's no way he cannot do that. Um, but it, it was interesting to think, you know, in, in a situation like that, his work is art, it, it's more than just furniture. Um, and I think 
part of that, I mean, I'm sure that he charges because of the quality of his work and the amount of time that he has spent in, you know, investing into that. I'm sure he charges a very premium price for his work. I'm sure it's more than, you know, if he were to build a table and I were to build a table, he's going to charge, you know, a whole lot more than what I would. But well, like you said, it's art. It is. And I think, you know, he wouldn't necessarily make one of those tables for a struggling family who just needs a, a, a kitchen table, you know, because it's a different kind of table and I think that there's an element of patronage in there um, he has customers who are willing to pay this very very premium price for furniture and it's definitely you know I don't know his prices he doesn't post his prices but I'm sure that it's something that would cause you know those of us who are just standard <laughs> middle class people yeah. to have a bit of a heart attack because like oh my goodness I could never afford to pay that much but there his his customers are are functioning as patrons you know in throughout history lots and lots of great art exists purely because someone with enough money was willing to pay an artist to bring his creation to fruition and that helps society it it helps all of us because it connects us with the true, the good, and the beautiful. It inspires us. Of that time, us. especially. Yeah. Um, because that art transcends time. It, it, it lives on beyond the creator, beyond the generation that it was created in. Because of its unique qualities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, you know, definitely go, go check out his work. It's amazing. He's also got a lot of... Um, he does a lot of, like, engineering in the the pieces that he builds um, he has this one i want to say it's called the automaton table i apologize if i'm getting the name wrong but it's incredible we'll post a link to the video um but you know a lot of motion within the table like you know you press down on the top of the table and it raises up and drawers pop open and there are secret compartments and it it's just they're complete and total works of art and they're amazing so thank you very much craig for weighing in on the conversation um, hopefully we'll be able to kick a few more people your way uh, <laughs> at, at, in terms of subscribers. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening and for, for chiming in there. Uh, which brings us to our main topic this week, uh, which is fortitude, practice and fortitude. Um, so Jonathan, do you want to talk about the definition of fortitude? Yeah, so we wanted to maybe try and summarize this, but, you know, after reading through this, um, reading through the definition in the catechism of the Catholic church, it was just too beautiful not to just share verbatim what it, what it says. So mm -hmm. it says fortitude is the moral virtue that ensures firmness in difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of the good. It strengthens the resolve to resist temptations and to overcome obstacles in the moral life. It's just, wow. I mean, you know, <laughs> That when when we read it out loud to each other, like I, I, I that's perfect. Um, and yes, it says obstacles in the moral life, but you know we think about if all of our if all of our listeners are striving to live virtuously, that is more or less the moral life. Um, and it's not just to the exclusion of the moral life, but everything that we do should be ordered rightly ordered to that life, to living virtuously, whether it's in the shop or at our day jobs or at home with the kids or the family or friends or coworkers, whoever it is, we're called to live that way always. And so, you know, going back to that definition, the, that ensures firmness and difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of the good. That's why we paired it with practice. You know, practice is not fortitude, but you think of fortitude as courageous and, and a persistence in courageousness. Uh, and so we, we talk about, we wanted to talk about practice, uh, and, and kind of pairing that with fortitude. And so what we thought about doing and what we're going to talk through this is each of us has picked a skill in the shop that we are not good at, uh, or, or have much work to do in where we could be much better at it. And we want to kind of talk through, uh, we want to, practice that skill and share that experience with our listeners and encourage our listeners to do the same thing. Um, 
So we're going to talk about that in a minute. What we want to talk about first, though, is looking back on our woodworking careers, kind of, what has been the most rewarding skill that we've learned, um, that we've had to overcome, uh, that is, that we have, feel like we've, you know, successfully accomplished, and obviously there's always work to be done, but uh, that we are, you know, very proud of that we've accomplished or conquered. Um, and we want to challenge our listeners to share that as well. Um, but Adam, why don't you go first? What's, what's a skill that you feel like you've excelled at, um, only, only after conquering it as, you know, something where you kind of overcame it. Sure. Uh, for me, the, the easiest example of this that comes to mind is finishing and finish prep. And I am by no means an expert finisher. And I think there's still a large part of me that, you know, if it if I could just build these projects and then send them off to someone else to finish, <laughs> I would leap at the opportunity. I do that. I am always happy when, when a client or a friend says, oh, don't worry, I'll finish it. You just build it. I'm like, perfect. Yay. <laughs> Sold. I'll do it for free. Right. <clears throat> um, but... I have to say, since I have started taking finishing and finish prep more seriously, I've come to enjoy that part of the process. Not as much as making it. (laughs) You know, I could never be just a professional finisher who only does that. But for the rest of my projects, I feel like that is a part of them. And I've stopped thinking of projects as being done when they're fully constructed. They're not done until they're finished, which sounds like a really bad pun, but you know, it's the truth. You're right. So um, basically my first few projects, my first few projects weren't finished at all. The, the two woodworking projects that I built, the two very first woodworking projects that I built were both outdoor projects One was a series of little tables that I made out of pallet wood for us to keep on our porch. They're like little side tables. We've got some uh, like plastic Adirondack chairs, which don't get me started. I know I want to build wooden Adirondack chairs eventually, but for for now we have the plastic ones. And uh, (laughs) so do we. (laughs) There are these little um, side tables that I built out of pallets, which are neat. I'll put some pictures up. Um, And then the other one is an outdoor, I call it a Murphy bar. So basically, it, it's like a cabinet that we have mounted to, uh, you know, one of the exterior walls of our house by our patio. And then you open the top drawers and then the bottom section swings out like a Murphy bed. And then oh, nice. is on I've chains. I've seen like that before. Yeah. Yeah. It's on chains. So it stays completely horizontal and then becomes like a work service for you to make drinks and whatnot. Um, Does both a bottle of, those... of scotch pop out too? Well, not automatically, but you know, ideally, there's going to be a bottle of scotch waiting you in there. Add for that you should that feature in there. Do something. So, um, <laughs> but uh, that also used reclaimed wood. It wasn't pallet wood, but it was also reclaimed. And so, I I know I knew enough at that point to know that outdoor finishes are finicky, and you know, they don't last very long. Sort of by the nature of being outside, some of them last longer than others, but there isn't really an outdoor finish that you can put on that isn't going to need to be renewed at some point, whether it's a year, whether it's two years, five years, or even as short as like six months, depending on where you live and your weather conditions. So I just left them unfinished, which is fine. But then the first couple of projects that I finished, I guess I rushed and I didn't really give it the time and attention that it needed because good finishing for, for those of our listeners who either are not woodworkers or who are woodworkers and just need this reminder, good finishing starts with surface preparation. If you have a rough surface, you're not going to get a smooth finish unless you're pouring like a, you know, an epoxy, you know, like a bar top sealer or something over it where the yep. finish is so thick that it's going to level itself. Um, so you need to sand or hand plane the surface smooth. You need to make sure that all of your curves are fair because any imperfection in the surface, not only is it going to make the finish look and feel bad, but it's 
almost going to be magnified. You know, um, one of the things that woodworkers will do is we'll wipe a project down with like mineral spirits or, or al- denatured alcohol or something like that because it wets the, the grain of the wood and it kind of shows any of those imperfections that will only show up once you put finish on the project. So I was not giving the surfaces the attention and the the preparation that they needed i was being sloppy with my sanding i was skipping grits i was you know not wiping it down with mineral spirits and so i'd i'd you know put some finish on and notice some dings and scratches that i hadn't noticed before again because the light in our shop is terrible (laughs) so that makes um, it difficult and the the one project that i regret that the most is i built an engagement ring box for my wife when I proposed. And I actually built a matching box for myself because my thought was I, I wanted to build an engagement ring box, but I also knew that hopefully, if you know, assuming she said yes, which I was pretty sure she was going to, um, <laughs> she would be wearing the engagement ring from that point forward. Yeah. So I thought, I don't want to put all this time and effort into a box that she's going to feel like she has to keep around if she doesn't have a use for it. So I made it a little bit oversized, and I made a, a complimentary box for myself, and I figured we could keep our rosaries in them. Um, so hers is some nice... Uh, bird's eye maple with a walnut inlaid top or like not inlaid but inset walnut top and mine is walnut with an inset maple top and very nice you know i i'll put some pictures up in the show notes as well but they turned out okay for i mean they turned out pretty well for the level of woodworking skill that i had at the time which was not much but where I really did not do them justice was in the finishing. And I was using shellac, which, you know, woodworkers tend to either love or hate shellac. And one of the reasons that they hate it is because it can dry very quickly if you don't know what you're doing with it. And, you know, ironically enough, one of the reasons why they love it is because it can dry really quickly if you know what you're doing with it. (laughs) And so you can put a lot of coats on. But I didn't know how to use it, and so I got a can of it, and I just dipped a brush in the can, and then started brushing it on, and it's just so thick. It's way too thick, you know, and so it was drying and and dripping, and, you know, I was trying to sand out these drips and and smears and stuff, and it it just, I got it to the point where, you know... (laughs) It was kind of as good as I was going to be able to get it. Without redoing the project. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because, um, you know, they're small box parts. I didn't want to sand through anything. so That's always my fear. Yeah. So in the end, they turned out okay, but I could have done a much better job. So I made the resolution from that point forward that I was going to start taking a lot more time to finish uh, you know, and, and do the surface prep that I needed to. So when it came time, you know, um, to build the kneeler that I built for us to use at our wedding, I made sure that I sanded everything. You know, I had just gotten a smoothing plane, so I was using a smoothing plane, but I hadn't quite gotten the hang of getting the tracks out of it. Um, you know, it was still leaving that tracks in the wood. Yeah, so... Um, I ended up using a card scraper and, and sandpaper and stuff. And let me tell you, it, it's it's better. It's definitely better. I, I also used shellac on that. Um, and especially the top. I spent the most time on the top surface because I figured, you know, that's kind of the show portion. That's where the neatest grain is. And it's also the portion that we're going to notice the most looking at it and using it. Right. Um, and the top is exquisite. The rest of it, though, I, I'm actually getting a little bit of kind of an orange peel effect now. So I, I, I think that I was not quite preparing it to the smoothness that I should have. So mm-hmm. I may refinish that at some point, but I may also just leave it because it's it's you know it's good enough. It's, it's very much good enough. Um, but that's just one of the things that I've been working on. And I, I still have a long way to go but I'm light years ahead of where I was when I started. And 
it's come to the point where, you know, finishing is a lot like sharpening. Um, there are a million ways to finish a woodworking project, and there are a million ways to sharpen your tools. But the best thing that you can do if you want to get better at it is pick one way and work the heck out of it. I mean, just use it and use it and use it and really get to know the subtleties and the nuances of that one way. So, you know, for me, that was shellac. And there's a great video by Mike Pekovich of Fine Woodworking Magazine um, that goes over how he does his shellac finishes. And that has really helped me. Um, you know, some of it was stuff that I had picked up from other sources, but others are, are really great tips um, that I had not yet heard. So we'll post a link to that too, because I think that they have, I think they've excerpted that out and it's available for free because a lot of their stuff is is behind a paywall but right um, i think that's one of the videos that's available for free if it's not i apologize but it's a great investment anyway so <laughs> yeah um but anyway speaking of sharpening uh what's a skill that you've worked on well so i want to talk about that but i want to break down what you just went through because i think there's a lot of really good things in there the first thing okay, is sure. that obviously your first attempt was more or less a failure in, in, right. in, in uh, compared to success, right? You failed in, in creating the finish that you wanted mm -hmm. and you could leave it at that and say, well, I failed. I'm not any good at this. I'm done. I'm going to go try something else because that I don't know how to do that. Or mm -hmm. I just doesn't work for me. Right. <laughs> but you didn't, you it was persist. <laughs> yeah. You persisted through that and said, it, it was almost like a motivator. Like I'm better than shellac. I can defeat you. <laughs> I'm not going to let you have the better hand here. Um, and so you continued to practice that. And um, that's, you know, that's very much why we wanted to talk about practice and fortitude together, because that persistence piece is, is really the important piece. Mm -hmm. um, and so sharpening was the same way for me. And that, that's what I want to talk about is kind of my journey in sharpening. You know, I first, my first hand tool was well my first hand plane was a i don't know i think it's called great plane it's literally a piece of crap um i mean absolutely horrible i think you get it at like menards or home depot i don't know it's horrible right, right. but it's the one thing that i had um and i think it was two christmases ago i made some furniture for our living room um and so i had a bunch of barn wood that i got for the kitchen table that I, the, there was oak and then there was birch and obviously birch is pretty easy. Um, it's, it's soft wood, very easy to cut through. Uh, and so all I really needed to do was flatten that because I didn't have a thickness planer. Uh, and I, you know, I wanted, I needed to actually be flat, not just smooth because the boards right, had, right. had cupped over time. Uh, and so I, I got through it, but it was not great. Um, and at the time I didn't have sharpening stones. So I, what I was using was sandpaper on a, on my table saw, okay. on, on, you know, on the cast iron table saw top, uh, which for the record works just fine. Right. If it's you a do flat that, reference surface. Yeah, and... If you do that and use a strop, you'll be just fine. Um, but the cool thing was, and I forgot about this until just now as I was going through this, but I, I don't know if you follow Anne of all trades. Yes. Yeah. So she's phenomenal, right? Um, and she does a lot of great things. I mean, she's an extremely talented woodworker, uh, but she does a lot of great things for the community. Well, I don't know if she still offers this. If she does, everyone should go get a session from her. But she had, an, like, you could buy an hour-long session with her. Oh. Where over, like, Skype or Hangouts or something like that, you know, she'd, she'd be happy to talk through, um, you know, if it's something that she knows well enough to be able to teach somebody else. And so I was like, hey, can you help me with sharpening? <laughs> Nice. Uh, and she gave me a, you know, a bunch of really, really great tips and that kind of helped motivate me. But I think the one thing that I took away from that was, I don't remember the exact wording she used. This was, you know, two, two plus years ago, but it was like, just keep at it, keep practicing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that brings me to, you know, I've done several projects since then I've gotten, you know, a couple, I've got a number five Stanley Sweetheart plane, which I just absolutely love. This thing is amazing. It's, it's, you know, it's longer and heavier than a number four, 
right. but I it's the only plane I have. I use it for everything, and it works just fine. Um, I would say it works more than just fine. It works extremely well because I know how to sharpen the blade now. Okay. And I really learned when I was trying to do the beds with the hickory. Because if you didn't have a razor-sharp blade, it would just skip across the wood, tear out, horrible tear out, and or just literally not cut anything. Right. Because the wood is so hard and the blade was dull. And I would take the same dull blade and I'd go run it across walnut or some other soft wood. It cut like it cut like butter. Interesting. It was unbelievable how how sharp the blade needed to be in order for it to work fine. Um. So, I at some point I think in a year I don't know it was probably Christmas or birthday I got a sharpening stone you know a diamond sharpening stone which I will say makes sharpening easier. Uh, but that's not the reason why I've gotten good at it. The reason I got good at it was. I had to use hickory for the beds. That's what I had. I didn't want to spend a ton of money on new lumber. I didn't have. I don't have a thickness planer. I don't have a joiner. Okay. I, and I, you know, I wanted these to be really, really good beds that lasted. I wanted these to be good quality beds. I wanted to be, you know, proud of the work that I did. I wanted my kids to look at these when they're older and say, wow, I can't believe dad built those. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> and so, you know, now I've probably spent, you know, several, I've probably spent, you know, 20 hours practicing sharpening. I mean, not practicing, but just sharpening. Sure. Uh, putting I, it into I'd practice. Sharpen it. I'd follow the process. I'd put it back in the plane. I'd try it. And it's like, nope, that did not work. Uh, and one of the things that I actually realized was that I was under sharpening. Okay. I was never, I was afraid of dulling the blade by like rolling it or something like that. So I was hesitant to really sharpen it. And so once I finally figured out that like everybody talks about having a burr at the end of the blade, mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, it's sharp. Well, it's like, I wasn't really getting to that point and I was like, well, maybe I'm doing it wrong or I'm not really sure I understood that. So I just kind of dismissed that. But you get that burr by, because when the two edges meet, the top surface and the bottom surface, if you've got a dull blade, they're not really touching because there's a third surface, which is a flat, dull blade. Mm -hmm. But when you sharpen through that that third surface and the two surfaces truly meet, that's where you get the burr. Mm -hmm. uh, so, again, through practice, persistent practice, that's when I realize, oh, okay, that's how far I have to go to get to sharp. But... I know what a sharp blade looks like now. I know what it feels like. I know how well it cuts, you know, you know, the, the, the arm hair test, right? Like it literally cuts effortlessly. And that's a, that to me, that's my indicator. Okay. I've, I've got it sharp enough and I don't do that test all the time, but if I'm not sure, and I know that I need it to be razor sharp, I'm going to, I'm going to do that test because I've gotten to the point now where I know what a sharp blade does and how easily it works and what it feels like and what it looks like and what it is able to do without putting it back into the plane first that I've come, you know, I've, I've become pretty proficient in it. Of course, there's still plenty of, I can continue to get better at it. And, and, um, you know, but I've gotten to the point now where I'm actually mostly sharpening by hand. I, I mean, I use a jig every once in a while to like maybe true up the blade, make sure it's square again. Okay. Uh, but for the most part, I'm just doing, you know, hand sharpening. Uh, and it's just because I've gotten so comfortable with it where I know what it feels like and I know what the angle feels like and it's just become very, very natural. Um, and I wouldn't have done that had I had a choice. I would have taken the easier path. I was like, oh, I got a thickness planer. Sure. No problem. But it's like, I, I only have a table saw, hand saws and a number five hand plane. And somehow I have to figure out how to make the pieces of this bed because I'm not going to go buy new tools. Mm -hmm. I don't have the money and I don't want to because I, it's like I almost wanted it to be a tougher challenge. So sure, that's, you know, that's been really, really rewarding. And so we wanted to share our kind of our stories of, you know, a rewarding, a skill that we've learned that's been somewhat rewarding and kind of lead into what's the next skill, because what we want to challenge our listeners to do and encourage is yes do this for one skill but once you've done it then go to the next skill and then the next skill and the next skill 
And we strongly recommend that you do that instead of what I did early on, which was I'd go buy a power tool to make some job as easy as possible to finish a project that I wanted to finish. And then the next project, if I thought there was an easy way to do that with a new power tool, I'd go buy that power tool and I'd do that. But the problem was is that I never got good at anything, like really good at any one tool because I never really spent any much that much time with them. Every project was an excuse to get a new tool versus perfect the ones that I had. And so I ended up with a whole bunch of tools and not a lot of skill because I didn't have to be that skilled in order to get the job done well enough. And so I've sold actually a good chunk of my tools. I've sold a bandsaw. I sold my thickness planer, um, a couple other things. And I'm, you know, I'm down to, I'm kind of back where I started, which is a table saw, a hand plane, hand saws, a drill press, and a lathe and a router. And I can do everything I need to do with those tools. And if I can't, well, then I'll just change the design so that I can instead of keep the design even though I don't have the tools and go buy the tools even though I don't know how to use them. So that leads me back to what I talked about earlier, which is the lathe card. I built a lathe card because turning is the skill that I want to learn. And I want to learn it well and do it right. Um, and I want to be pleased with the quality of the work that I deliver. So the specific challenge for me is I have a set of chisels, which are actually really great. They're, they're Buck Brothers chisels, uh, but they work just fine. Um, they're really, really good chisels, I think. Uh, I've never used any others, so I don't have anything to compare them to, but they're great. The problem <laughs> well, is, is that the handles are heavy. What? If they're doing what you need them to, then they're exactly. good enough. Exactly. Um, and so I've got these. They, they, they have epoxy handles, though, so the handles are really, really heavy. Mm-hmm. And they're not very comfortable. Uh, and it causes, you know, a little bit of hand fatigue and it's just hard to cut straight with them. Um, so what I want to do is I want to take those handles off and I want to replace them with wooden handles, what I would turn on the lathe, but I want to do a really good job. I want each handle to look exactly the same as the rest of them. I want them to fit very, very well. I want to be very happy with the design, the way they look, the way they work. And so... I'm going to practice turning by making these handles, but I'm not going to stop until I feel like they're good enough. So I've already made one handle and it's okay. It gets the job done. And that's where I usually would have stopped. Like, oh, it's good enough. Move on. But it's not perfectly straight. The, the handle is off a little bit because I drilled the hole after I turned the handle instead of before. So I didn't have a straight square parallel reference point for the drill press. Interesting. So I learned that the next handle I make is I'm going to drill the hole first. Uh, And there's, you know, I learned a couple other things making that first handle, but I'm not going to settle for the first handle. I'm going to continue. I'm going to power through and continue until I feel like I have a really good handle design that I really like. And then I'm going to replicate that, which is another part of turning is, you know, if I need to make four table legs or four of something, that's part of one project, they need to be the same. Mm-hmm. And so there are, you know, there's building uh, or, cre- you know, creating a two-dimensional template that you can put up against the piece while it's while it's spinning so that you can see if you've matched the original pattern or not and you make adjustments accordingly. So I'm going to try that and I want to make sure that the, the four chisel handles are well made, they match, and they're, and they're of good quality. So... That's what I'm going to be practicing. And again, we want to challenge everyone to, to think of something that that they've maybe been putting off because it's like, I'm afraid of that. I don't know how to do it. Uh, and, and I want to challenge you to pick something, even if it's something simple, something small, and, and really challenge yourself to spend a little bit of time every day or every week, or even if it's every month, mm-hmm. block off some time to work on that thing that you're not good at. Uh, because... You will get good at it if you practice it enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Adam, what do you what would you pick? Uh, I chose hand sawing because one of the things that I like uh, using both 
a mixture of hand tools and power tools really appeals to me because there are some jobs that just make more sense, at least to me, to use a handsaw for. One of the things that I really like about that is the ability to saw to a line, no matter what that line is or where the line is. And you can do that with power tools, but it because the tool is generally stationary, you know, a table saw or a band saw, if you're going to saw to a line that isn't, you know, square and perpendicular or, or whatever, you're going to need to jig it up. And, you know, um, you're going to need to create a jig that holds it at the proper angle so that right. it, it it is, you know, cutting the way that you need it to, which is fine for, like, production work, but I don't do production work, and I rarely work on a hard and fast deadline, so I have the time that, you know, if I were better at handsawing, uh, basically, you know, the point of a handsaw is you strike a line, you cut to that line. It doesn't matter where the line is, what angle it is, as long as you can saw to a line, you can cut anything. So I need to get better at that so that I can use that in my projects. You know, if I want to hand cut dovetails, you can't hand cut dovetails unless you can saw to a line. That's the first the first step. Unless you're really, really, really good at chiseling. Right. <laughs> That's true, yeah, I guess. And you don't mind it taking forever. <laughs> right, or, I mean, technically you could gnaw the board into a dovetail shape, but, yeah. you know, standard dovetailing practice, you gotta, you gotta cut to a line. So um, one of the things that... Uh, Dan, my brother, was doing is, um, and he got this from one of the Instagram channels that he follows, is um, they recommended making a bunch of just lines, uh, striking a bunch of lines on a board, and then sawing to that. Uh, I want to say it was a woodworking school, but I can't remember which one. So, um, But they said that when they were teaching students how to dovetail, they recognized that, you know, even if you know how to cut dovetails, there's a certain amount of muscle memory that's there and it it's helpful to sort of warm up to that if it's been a while since you've cut dovetails by just cutting to lines and so they have their students do this exercise where you draw a bunch of parallel lines on a board and you just cut down them and they say that once you can cut to like two or three lines in a row where you're not swerving off to one side it's perfectly square and straight and parallel then you know you, at that point you're ready to do dovetails so right one of the things that i'm going to be doing it's not as useful as yours and i wish i had some sort of project you know um where i could make a bunch of saw curfs and <laughs> have it be something useful but sometimes practice is just necessary for practice's sake to get better at the skill so i will be um as often as i'm able going over to the shop uh which is as i mentioned before is at my brother's house half an hour away but I'll be going over there, striking a bunch of lines on a board, putting it in my vise, and hand sawing. And they're going to be terrible, folks. They're going to be terrible at first. But I've resigned myself to that, and I'm okay with that, because I know that the more I do it, the better I'm going to get. So we will be posting progress shots of these as often as we're able to do them uh, on the Arbor Vitae podcast Instagram feed. Um, so keep an eye out for those if you want to follow along with us and definitely definitely pick a skill yourself and do the same thing as often as you can over the next few weeks practice that skill and post progress shots because you know we can use social media to encourage one another we can you know keep building this community and give each other pointers or, you know, even just to say, hey, you're doing a great job, keep up the good work. You know, that encouragement can keep you going. Um, and then as you grow in your techniques, you're going to find that you're able to either prevent or just kind of resist the shortcomings that you've been encountering in your work. So it's, it's going to make you a better worker and it's going to make you a better person too, because, you know, virtue is virtue no matter what you're doing with it. So if you can get practice and, and consistence and perseverance in a woodworking skill, you can then apply that to anything, um, which I think is really awesome. Right. And 
in case any of our listeners aren't aware of this already, this is really important. There are no perfect woodworkers. I know. Right. But there aren't. What The better you get at woodworking, the less mistakes you make, but also the better you are able to either hide, like, I, I hate the word hiding, but, you know, that you're able to address those mistakes or hide them. Right, um, fix them. Yeah. So that kind of leads us into the, the, the last piece of this, which is we just wanted to share a couple of our, let's let's call them epic failures, where <laughs> things that we've just totally botched um, because we all make mistakes. And that, that's the thing is that you can't learn without making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like it's just not possible. And so to me, I, I guess I've, I've made enough of them where I'm not afraid of them anymore. And, um, you know, they hurt a little bit, you know, they hurt your pride a little bit and ho- hopefully just that and no, you know, no, no physical pain or anything like that. But, um, <laughs> they're good for us because they help us learn. They keep us humble, uh, and, and they're valuable lessons. So mine is when I was making the beds, the first, so each bed has four posts, right? So there's eight posts total and each post had two mortises in them. So for the first frame, the first two posts, I cut them out by hand. And I was like, okay, you know, I, I drilled, I used a drill press to drill a hole, you know, a couple of holes to make it a little bit easier and remove a bulk of the waste. And then I chiseled out the rest. Okay. And I was like, that, okay, that went okay. I was like, I kind of want to do this faster, <laughs> but I didn't have a plunge router. I had a, a, a router that plunged, but it didn't have a spring. So it would plunge, but it wouldn't go back up okay. unless you physically lifted it up, which is a little bit dangerous unless you just leave it in there. And then until you, t- un- until the blade stops spinning, you turn it off. Um, so I was using a spiral, a spiral bit. I don't remember if it was up cut or down cut. Um, and I'd actually made a jig for the router to stay straight. You know, they had a reference fence, basically. Like an edge um, guide. Yeah. Okay. But I never used one of these bits before. And true typical fashion of me, I was like, I don't want to practice this. Just like, I think I know how this is going to go. So I'm just going to go for it. I'm sure it'll be just fine. It wasn't. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I plunge the router. I move it like half an inch and it literally jumps out of the hole. Oh, no. And then lands on the workpiece like twice as I'm trying to turn it off and I was like, and so, you know, the dust settles. Right. And I look at the piece. I'm like, Oh my, wow, that's bad. Uh, and I kind of, you know, it's like, I look around, did anybody else see that? Can I, can I like rewind and pretend that didn't happen? But I was going to say, do you often have other people in your shop? Like nope, watching you? <laughs> nope. But, uh, you know, but of course I didn't practice. Right. I didn't try this on another piece of wood. I used it on the actual work piece. And I was like, right. son of a, and I didn't have any extra boards. Like this was it. I maxed out this hickory board that I bought. I was like, I'm not going to go get more wood. Oh. And I was, so I was left with either I leave it looking like, you know, looking like crap or I fix it. Right. And so what did I do? I said, okay, well, I know that other woodworkers patch, you know, I drill a hole in a spot that I wasn't supposed to drill it in or you know, I chisel my, my mortise is too long and it's supposed to be shorter. You patch it. And so I basically, there were two gaping holes around this square where the mortise is supposed to be outside of the hole, outside of the square. And so I chiseled out a square and I took a piece, a small, you know, a thin piece of hickory that generally matched the grain. The grain, it was pretty crazy on these pieces. So it was tough to get a match. Mm-hmm. Um, but I glued it in. I planed it down and I fixed the hole. It wasn't, it didn't look great. It's the first time I'd ever done a patchwork. Mostly the grain, you know, it was flush. It was a good fit, but just the grain wasn't a perfect match. Um, But I fixed the mistake. And so the project is done. I managed to put it on the inside of the bed underneath the mattress. So, you know, unless you literally lift the mat, lift the whole bed up, lay underneath it and look very closely, you won't never see it. Uh, obviously our listeners know that it's there, uh, but that's okay. You know, that's why we wanted to share these stories, but we I learned, you. I learned, I learned that I don't know how to use a spiral bit. So mm-hmm. until I figure out how to learn them, how to use them correctly, I'm just going to use my straight bit. 
-hmm. And so I used the straight bit for the rest of them and it worked just fine. Um, I'm sure maybe some of our listeners could tell me what I've done wrong or like, why would it jump out? Um, but it, it did. I learned from it and you know, I, I addressed it. Um, Adam, what about you? Uh, for me, the biggest thing was, was those, uh, rosary boxes, the ring box that I made for yeah. my wife and you know, my matching box. Um, just not getting the good finish on it with, with the shellac. It was too thick. Uh, I didn't really know how to brush it and, you know, I was able to fix it, but it was, it was pretty bad at first. So, um, that really inspired me to go on and, and just practice a little bit more. Um, I'd like to say that I did some test boards, but I didn't, (laughs) you should always test. I don't blame you. You should always test your finishes out, but you know, for the record, (laughs) I have conceded to use Danish oil for most of my finishing. And I'll blame it on the fact that I don't have a temperature controlled shop, but that's not, I mean, I don't, but I have a basement (laughs) so I could totally finish in the basement, but I don't want to. So that's a skill that I'll learn later on. But for now, I'm just going to stick to Danish oil because I've got that down pretty well. Well, and there's nothing wrong with that because you're you're sticking with one and and you're, I'm sure you're learning the nuances of Danish oil and the beds turned out really well. Yeah. Um, so the, the one, one, one more thing we wanted to mention though. So I'm sure any of any, any of those who are listening probably know Bob Claggett from, I like to make stuff. The guy's awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've tried to reduce the time I spend on YouTube, not because there's not great content on there, but it, it had come become something where it was like, literally it took me away from like, Oh, the kids are being boring. I'm going to watch YouTube on my phone or, oh, I don't like who I'm sitting in front of. I'm going to watch YouTube on my phone or I don't want to go do yard work. I'm going to watch YouTube on my phone. So I've (laughs) I've really reduced significantly those channels that I actually subscribe to down to really like five, really five. Um, And Bob's one of them. Now, if I need to learn how to do something, I'll look it up and I'll go watch somebody's video or a couple of videos. But other than that, I really only subscribe to a couple of channels. Bob's is the one, one of them that I continue to watch though. And one of his latest videos was this, it's a half of a log. Um, I think he mentioned that like it came from a, a pile from his, his grandfather. Uh, I think the, the grandfather had recently passed away. Uh, but what he did was really cool because he turned it into a bench, but a bench with a lid with like a, a you know, a storage compartment inside the log, but it was just the log. So he had to cut the log apart. Mm-hmm cut out a chunk of it, put it back together so that it looked like one log so that he could actually have a storage container inside this log. Project looks awesome. But there's two things I wanted to highlight from that video that I just think is are fantastic. The first thing is that at the very beginning, as he's trying to flatten the top of the log, he kind of looks at the camera and says, I know you're probably going to, you're probably thinking that's not the right hand. That's not right. The right hand plane for the project. And it probably isn't, or that's not the right chisel for the project. And it probably isn't, but then just kind of nonchalantly, he shrugs it off and says, but those are what I have. So I'm going to use that. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's fantastic because I don't ever want somebody to not pursue woodworking because they don't feel like, well, I can't do it because I don't have all these really expensive tools because it's just, that's not true. Um, and so, you know, you look at his shop, you know, maybe compared to many other woodworkers who are out there and he doesn't have all of the greatest of everything. He's got a saw stop, which is a great table saw, but he worked hard for that and, you know, paid for it with his hard earned money over, you know, an extended period of time. Before that, he had a really, really old, you know, pretty lame table saw. Um, you know, he's got a decent bandsaw, but he's not constantly adding new tools to, to, to the shop. Um, he has a, I would say a fairly rudimentary set of tools, but he doesn't care because he knows that they really don't get in the way of him doing the projects that he can do. And the biggest thing that I learned from him is he's creative. He, he works within the, 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 within the tool set that he has and he gets the job done. And if he can't literally can't do it with the tools he has, then he'll do something else. Um, so that is awesome because I don't, I would hate to see anybody not go after woodworking simply because they don't have a hundred power tools. The other thing that he talked about in that video was 
As he was ripping one side of the log off on the bandsaw, he realized that he had ran it through the bandsaw the wrong way. He cut the wrong side of it off. Mm -hmm. And so he could have kind of looked around like I did and said, well, shoot, the camera was on. (laughs) Everyone was listening. So he could have cut that out of the video. But instead, what he did was he actually highlighted and said, that's right. I just made a mistake. I cut the wrong side of the log off. So what did he do? He showed us how to fix it. Mm -hmm. He took the time to glue that piece back on. You know, he did it well. And then he ran it through. Once the glue had dried, he ran it through the other way and carried on. And so I think it's awesome that he highlighted that mistake because I think it's so easy for all of us to look at those on YouTube and those on Instagram and be like, oh, I can never be like that guy. You know, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that um, in, in, a, in a second, but I just want to kind of wrap that up. Yeah, it's a really impressive video and we will um, we'll include that in the show notes. Uh, we encourage you to, to definitely check it out. Um, and we also encourage you, you know, our challenge question this week you know, we kind of have a, a question and a task. Um, in terms of the challenge question, let us know what skills you have practiced or maybe skills that you need to practice. And again, we can't encourage you enough to practice those skills along with us. Share your progress along with us. Um, social media has such power, and we're going to get into this a couple of episodes in the future, but it has such a power to encourage people and inspire people and to promote the good so this is one of the ways that we can do that we're all going to be growing our skills together and we can give each other encouragement and follow along with the progress it's going to be awesome yes so definitely share it and we'd love for you to use the uh the hashtag stay virtuous we think it's pretty cool we're going to start using that um just as kind of a you know, a way of reminding us of that, you know, that's our, that's our goal here. On the topic of sharing with us, we would like to hear from you. We would like to know if you have any questions for us, or if you have any topics that you'd like to see us cover. Um, We do have an email for the show. You can email us. It's contact at arborvitaepodcast.com, or you can contact us through our social media, which will give you all that stuff at the end of the show. Awesome. All right, so our feature craftsman. Last week we talked about Mike Woods, who is a Sawyer here in Indiana, locally for me. Uh, awesome guy. Hopefully you got a chance to listen to the interview. We thought it was fantastic. We hope that you did as well. This week is... Go ahead, Adam. You want to share with us? Sure. Our featured craftsman this week is Father Thomas Bailey from Monkworks. Uh, he's really an awesome person. I mean, aside from the fact that he's a Benedictine monk, uh, he is a a bi-ritual priest. Um, He was uh, raised Roman Catholic, but now um, based on the apostolate that, you know, where he was assigned, he has faculties to celebrate the Byzantine liturgy, um, which is very interesting. But aside from the whole monastic life priesthood thing, he's a great woodworker and he's you know, the projects that he makes are really, really neat. Um, and they're interesting. You know, it's not, it's not always the same thing that you see everyone else building and it can be a great source of inspiration. Like one of the things, I I can't remember whether it was for like get woodworking week or, or something like that, but he makes a plane, like a hand plane out of plywood. I watched that last night. It was awesome. It's incredible. And you know, it it kind of goes with that whole um, scarcity of tools thing, which we're going to talk about in detail next episode. But, you know, you don't need to have fancy tools that cost or a whole lot of money. fancy lumber. Right. You don't need curly maple to make a hand plane. <laughs> right. You know, he bought a plane, uh, a, a plane blade, um, and he laminated plywood together. It's awesome. Go check it out. Um and so we got, uh, he was very gracious in, in giving us an interview that we're going to release next week. Um, and it's, it's a really great interview. I had a lot of fun talking with him. Um, he gave us some of his own thoughts on practice and fortitude. And I, I don't want to spoil that, but uh, there is a skill that Father Bailey, uh, Father Thomas, um, would like to develop a little bit more. And so 
Uh, Great, I can't wait. Yeah, he may be he may be joining us on our challenge. Um, I don't want to sign him up for anything, but uh, he we may just be did. joining us. So um, you we can just find did. He's him. He's been officially at... challenged. What'd you say? He's been officially challenged. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll throw down the gauntlet for Father. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can find him on monkworks.org. And uh, by the way, monkworks here is spelled, the works is W-E-R-K-S. So monkworks.org is his website. Um, he's monkworks with Father Thomas on YouTube, at monkworks on Instagram, or at monkworks1 on Twitter. And, uh, you know, go check him out. Uh, definitely take a listen to the interview when we release that next week. Um, because I think you're really going to like it. Awesome. Well, that wraps it up uh, this episode. So thanks again for listening, everyone. Uh, next episode, we will be talking about scarcity and temperance. So we look forward to hopefully having you over there as well. Uh, in the meantime, feel free to check us out on our website at arborvitaepodcast.com uh, or on Instagram, Facebook, uh, at Podcast. also there. And then you can follow myself, Jonathan, along at the, I am the Catholic Woodworker on Instagram, and you can find Adam at, at Catholic Composer on Instagram. So don't forget to share your, uh, your skill stories with us, whether it's something you've learned or something you plan on learning. We can't wait to hear about it. And as always, stay virtuous. <laughs>